You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Applause. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Um, it's good to be here. It's like magic when you sit in the front row. You come in, there's like five people in the, in the, in the church, and then when you get up and turn around, whoa! It's like everyone, it's, it's suddenly there's all these people here. It's magic. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about our hearts. Specifically, I want to talk about what it means to be wholehearted. Um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last few months, of how can we have a wholehearted faith? And to get there, I want to start with a story that took place about 50 years ago. And I, I just follow along with me. I think in the end it'll become clear, but at first it may not exactly be clear to you why we're talking about a missionary in Africa. But um, I want to start with his story. He, his name is Vincent Donovan. He was a Spiritan priest and he lived in Tanzania and was a missionary at a, mission, a Catholic mission there. And he spent 17 years um, a, among the Maasai people in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, he grew frustrated with the work of the church in Africa. Uh, he, he was frustrated with the perceived lack of progress in evangelizing the local people. Uh, the Catholic Church had arrived a hundred years earlier. They had built missions and hospitals and schools, and yet he could not find a single genuine convert to the Christian faith. Out of this frustration, he wrote a letter to his bishop, and these were his words. I am suddenly weary of the discussions that have been going on for years in the mission circles of Europe and America as to the meaning of missionary work, weary of the meanings and seminars devoted to missionary strategy. I suddenly feel an urgent need to set aside all theories and discussions, all effort of strategy, and simply go to these people and do the, the work among them for which I have come to Africa. Just go and talk to them about God and the Christian message. Outside of this, I have no theories, no plan, no strategy, no gimmick, no idea what will come. I feel rather naked. I will begin as soon as possible. His book that he wrote called Christianity Rediscovery, Rediscovered tells the extraordinary account of this effort. The result being the shattering of his faith and the rediscovery of the Christian message in a new and liberating way. He learned along the way that so much of what we believe about what it means to be a Christian is predicated upon having a Western worldview. And when you speak to a tribal people who have a pagan worldview, none of it makes sense to them. At one particular point in, in his time among the Maasai tribe, he was convinced that the Christian faith had nothing to offer them. And he was starting to think that the Christian faith was not valid for him. It no longer had anything to offer him as well. He came to doubt everything that he had believed. And one night, he was, uh, oh, he, had, he wrote this. He said, uh, I can sympathize with and feel with young Americans whom I have met who are going through the agony of unbelief. I used to think that faith was a head trip, a kind of intellectual assent to truths and doctrines of our religion. I know better now. When my faith began to be shattered, 
I did not hurt in my head. I hurt all over. And perhaps some of us can relate to that. He recounts one evening talking to a Maasai tribe elder about his agony of faith and belief and his unbelief. And the elder gave him a bit of insight. He explained to him that you are using two different languages to teach us. You are using our own language, and you are also using the Kiswali language. But you're using that language to explain to us what faith means. He says, you are not using the right word for faith. Your definition of faith is unsatisfactory. Your definition literally means to agree to. He said, to believe like that is similar to a white hunter shooting an animal with a gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers take place in the act. The Maasai elder suggested that we find another word for faith. The elder continued, For a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All of the power in his body is involved in that terrible death leap and the single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man actually believes. This, the elder said, is what faith is. And I would say this is what wholehearted faith is. I've been thinking about this verse that was read. It's the great commandment. If you spent any time in church, you came across it, you know, and it, we, when we simplify everything about the Bible down to its essence that everyone says, oh, it's about loving God and loving people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the same is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And I started thinking about what is, how do we even do that? What does that even mean? How do you love wholeheartedly anymore? As I was preparing for this message, I came across this fact. Um, I learned our dear friend Rachel Held Evans, who's a friend of our community, a great author and writer who, who passed away tragically in the spring. Uh, her last book that she wrote, who has not been published yet, is called Wholehearted Faith and is set for publication next year. And I thought she's on to something. And, and I think for people in communities like us, we need to re-engage in what it means to be wholehearted. For so many of us, our faith has become something that happens in our head. So in the text, we have this idea of loving God with all of our hearts. It's based on this verse in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your strength. The word in Hebrew for heart really means inner man, mind, will, soul, understanding. Um, your comprehending mind, it means your affections, your will. Really, it means everything that you are. And the words that follow it are just um, um, words to emphasize the same point. It could have just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But to emphasize it, we say, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love the Lord like a lion hunts its prey. It does not mean blind devotion just believe, 
just agree to this. Don't think about it too much. I would actually argue that blind and thoughtless devotion is soulless and, and heartless. It means more than that. But this, this commandment, I think, is difficult for us as, as, as uh, Christians or as people of faith to do. And what tends to happen is we prioritize one over the other. Um, some of us will set out to love God with all of our heart, and we, so we set about the spiritual practices through worship, meditating on scripture. We spend a lot of time on sin management, trying to live pure lives. We are so focused on our personal journey with God. We often talk about our relationship, with our personal relationship with God, that the command to love our neighbors comes with an asterisk. We will love our neighbors so long as it does not risk or challenge our idea of what it means to love God. But that is not what the text says. On the other hand, some of us have a hard time with the whole idea of like loving God with all of our heart. We don't know how to do it, so we focus on love our neighbor. It is by far more practical. This is definitely where I'm at. It is through works of service, compassion, and justice that we encounter the divine. Love is divine. Therefore, if we love our neighbors, it will take care of the first part of loving God. But even here, the challenge comes in that this version of faith, we, have a, uh, a, we don't have a personal God. God becomes something out there. So the question that has haunted me is this. How do we love God when you've deconstructed your beliefs so much that you don't even know what God is? Is God a being, or is God the ground of being? How do you pursue something with all that you are when you don't even know what it is you're pursuing? How do we love God when our idea of God is fractured and broken? How do we pursue something when we don't understand it? The answer does not lie in our heads. It lies in our whole heart. The heart is a key theme throughout the Bible. If you, Jesus talks about it, blessed are the pure at heart or the single-hearted, for they shall see God. It's used extensively in the book of Psalms. Psalms 119.10 says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, it talks of serving the Lord with all your heart and soul. In Jeremiah, it says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The heart seems to be the core of what this pursuit is. In fact, in Exodus, God says, uh, when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, he didn't make arguments, intellectual arguments, about why not to let the people go. It said that God hardened his heart, his soul, his being, so that Pharaoh would not let the people go. So we come to this question that I've been wrestling with, how do we begin a wholehearted faith in a God that we do not understand? And I want to suggest a few things. First, it begins with an acknowledgement of our brokenness. In Luke 14, Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is the paradox of our faith. The path to wholeheartedness begins in brokenness. The path to wholeheartedness begins with our own brokenness. Richard Rohr says that psychological wholeness and spiritual wholeness never excluded the problem from the solution. It is, 
If it is wholeness, then it is always paradoxical and holds both the dark and the light of things together. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said that God, his Father, has the sun, sh the sun shines on the good and the bad. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We don't like the verse because it feels so unfair, but yet I think Jesus was hinting at a truth that the world and ourselves are broken. I think of the Leonard Cohen song. He, he sings these words, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We so often try to build walls around our brokenness and fear. We bury the truths in the corners of our heart rather than let the light enter the brokenness and into the cracks. God cannot work in us, and we cannot begin to have a wholehearted faith, let alone a wholehearted love for God. If we do not acknowledge the brokenness and acknowledge that that is, in fact, a key part of wholehearted love. If we build walls around our cracks, the light can never get in. And God is the light searching for our hearts. We must humbly embrace our brokenness, one. The second thing we can do is we step out of the shadows. I was backpacking last weekend and uh, it was, I had a great time. There were a lot of mosquitoes, and I saw them all around, but I didn't pay much attention to them. I was like, okay. I had a long sleeve shirt on, pants. I shushed them away. And then I got home Sunday night, and uh, I undressed to jump in the shower, and I looked at my body, and all the way up my arm and down both sides of my back was inflamed with hundreds of mosquito bites, hundreds. I like, I started counting and they're like, well, no, let's just, we'll start counting in hundreds rather than single digits because it was so bad. I looked like I had leprosy or something. It was bad. I was like, do I take a picture of it because it's so bad or do I just let it go? It was that bad. I was like, oh gosh. And then I quickly Googled like mosquito-borne diseases in the high Sierras. I'm like, what did I get? I got something. I'm sure I got something. I'm like, and then immediately it was like, oh, I feel it. I feel it coming. I feel like I'm definitely, I should maybe just go straight to the hospital now and, and, and tell them that I have some disease or something. Well, the inflammation went away. I'm doing much better now. There's still hints there. But the next day, you know, I put on my shirt, long sleeve shirt, buttoned all the way down, buttoned up the collars, and I went to work and nobody knew. I was covering. I covered the sickness or the, 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 the bites. Our origin story in the Bible tells us about covering. We were once naked in the Garden of Eden, and then we bit, took a bite of the apple, and ever since that day, we've been covering. We've been hiding in the shadows. When we acknowledge our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world, we must begin the vulnerable process of uncovering. Uncovering is different than wearing a mask. A mask is pretending to be something you're not. It's, it's acting like you're something that you're not. And that's a sermon for another day. That's not what I'm talking about, is wearing a mask. What I'm talking about is uncovering. And what I mean by that is 
covering is when we have a perceived social stigma. It may be tied to our race, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation, our religion, a disability, our physical appearance, our class, maybe a mental illness. When we have a perceived stigma and we go about covering it up so that we can assimilate and blend in the best we can. Sociologist Irving Goffman observes people who are ready to admit a possession of a stigma may nonetheless make a great effort to stop the stigma from looming large. Kenji Yoshino, in his book Covering the Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights, writes about famous examples of covering. He says, Raymond Estevez covered his ethnicity when he changed his name to Martin Sheen, as did Krishna Banji when he changed his name to Ben Kingsley. Margaret Thatcher covered her status as a woman when she trained with a voice coach to lower the timbre of her voice. Long after they came out as lesbians, Rosie O'Donnell and Mary Cheney still covered, keeping their same-sex partners out of public eye. Izur Danielvich Dembski covered his Judaism when he became Kirk Douglas, as did Joseph Levitch when he became Jerry Lewis. Franklin Delano Roosevelt covered his disability by ensuring his wheelchair was always hidden behind his desk before his cabinet meetings. This is covering. And we've all done it. Um, everyone covers from time to time, and even research indicates that straight white males who have the least to cover uh, are, have also reported covering, many of them uh, covering their conservative religious values for concern it would affect their jobs or their career path. Not surprisingly, though, over 70% of the LGBT community report covering as well as the, uh, our black brothers and sisters. They are told, be gay, just don't be too gay, or be black, so long as you just don't act too black. This, my friends, is covering. And how can you possibly have a wholehearted faith and love in God when we are trying to assimilate in and cover who we are. In order to experience a wholehearted love for God and our neighbors, we must take on the difficult task of uncovering and stepping out of the shadows in the fullness of who we are. We lose the divine power of brokenness when we live in fractured hearts, hiding who we are. I want to take a moment to play a song. It's short. It's only two minutes. But I thought we would pause right here and take a moment to pray, to meditate, and to think about our own brokenness. The acknowledging where the corners of our heart that we've built the walls around, the places in our soul that we don't let in the light in, and the ways in which we cover who we are. We're all bound by certain forces, the same as anyone. Step out of the shadows, my little one. There's a change is surely coming, a will that will be done. Step out of the shadows, my little one. Will you step out of the shadows, my little one? 
Silent River roll on With a Larry's week you're gonna break it Silent River deep and long Stay the road you're gonna make it Well the flame's been handed on now To a new wave rising strong Step out of the shadows My little one There's a balance to be righted The road goes on and on Step out of the shadows My little one Will you step out of the shadows My little one Silent river With the levee's weak, you're gonna break it. Silent river overcome. Closer to the sea now, you can make it. There's a lesson in this failing. The game goes on and on. Step out of the shadows, my little one. It's all out there for you waiting. If you're willing to become, step out of the shadows, my little one. Will you step out of the shadows, my little one? The path of wholeheartedness begins with the humble acknowledgement of our own brokenness and the vulnerable step of stepping out out of the shadows and uncovering ourselves. There's a third piece to this puzzle that I'm convinced of, and it wouldn't be Central Avenue Church if it wasn't a little bit heretical, so I will, this is the heretical part of the message. <laughs> but the third step in wholehearted faith and love, I believe, is to stop trying to love God, with the emphasis on trying. Stop trying to love God. In the Greek, as many of you might know, there are different words for the word love, and in this passage, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the word love comes from agapeo, which is, it means to prize above all things, to long for. It is the purest of love. Um, it is the same word used to describe God in 1 John when it says God is love. And it is the word um, used most often to talk about God and his relationship with us. It is also curiously to me the same word used in Matthew 5 when Jesus taught, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. The word for love here, to love your enemies, is the same word used in the great commandment, to love your God. I take hope that that, the same amount of love that we could possibly have for our enemies, is the same amount in which we could love our God. It seems like you should almost have a different word. Like the word for love meaning your friendship or companionship or tolerate your enemies or show patience to your enemies or treat your enemies like friends. 
But that's not what the word is. The word is love your enemies like you love God. I'm convinced that it is an impossible task to love your enemies without divine help, without God. You cannot love your enemies. And I would say the same thing about trying to love God. For some of us, God has become the enemy, I'm afraid. So take hope in that it is the same love. I want to return to Africa and to the account of Vincent Donovan sharing the Christian message among the Maasai. And I want to share the story of a young man. His name was Elsiki. And long before the priest had arrived to talk about the Christian faith, Olsiki had showed a disposition towards religious piety and a deep-felt hunger for God. As a teenager, he became a religious leader in his tribe. He led his tribe in prayers of thanksgiving and supplication. He developed distinct rituals and pagan liturgies, which involved singing and dancing and ceremonial drinking and processions around the village. There was no better pagan than Elsiki. In his early 20s, he was filled with the stories and the myths and the legends and the traditions of his tribe. He was so consumed with the desire to see God, Enge, face to face, that he embarked on a journey. He thought, what better place to see God than at the top of the active volcano, Od Odolongo Lenge, the mountain of God, a 10,000-foot volcano in Tanzania. His tribe, his people, believed that God came down uh, when it erupted. It, with fire and smoke, it came. That must be the place that God reveals himself. It was a very dangerous quest. Most people would never go. So he timed it so he could arrive just after the eruptions. It was a two-day safari Across the mountain, a barren wasteland scalded by lava flow, he went alone with a spear and a short sword and just a bit of food. He fasted to prepare himself to meet God. He climbed to the rim and he stared down into what could only be described as the mouth of hell, the breathing fire of this, of this mountain, and he waited. He stayed awake for nearly three days straight. He took small naps during the day so he could be awake at night because he was convinced that God would come to him. He fully expected to see God. But God did not appear. Disappointed, disillusioned, Elsiki went down from the mountain in a crisis of faith. He was plagued by the questions of what more could I do, he thought. What more could I do to deserve to see God? Pray more, more rituals, more liturgies, more feast days, he wondered. Then Donovan, the priest, came into the village, and he met him. And he described a certain sadness about Olsiki. And while he continued to practice as a religious leader, there was something that was bothering him, uh, a shattering in his soul. 
He could not think of what sin caused him to be undeserving of seeing God. He could not understand why God would hide his face from him. Donovan writes the following when he heard the story and he had a chance to talk to him. He says this, I almost had to smile when I realized how strangely things worked out. One time, when I realized um, when, I, when my faith was shaken, a pagan messiah elder passed on to me the deep and beautiful wisdom. Now I, a Christian evangelist, would pass on to the pagan messiah warrior. He said this, Olsiki, you have tried as hard as a man can try. You have left your father and family and home and went in search of God up that terrible mountain. You tracked and followed him to his lair like a lion tracks a, wilderness, a wildebeest. But all this time, he has been tracking you. You did not send for me or look me up. I was sent to you. You thought you were searching for Engai. All this time, he has been searching for you. God is more beautiful and loving than you ever imagined. He hungered for you, Elsiki. Try as we might, we cannot reach up by brute force and drag God down from the heavens. He is already here. He has found you. In truth, Elsiki, we are not the lion looking, looking for God. God is the lion looking for us. Believe me, God is a lion. A wholehearted love begins with a wholehearted God. And it ends with a wholehearted God. We take part in communion every Sunday. And this illustrates perfectly exactly what we're talking about. The God is not on a mountain out there somewhere, is not a being to be found. It is a God that is here among us, a God that hunts for us. God's light is in the cracks of our broken hearts. It calls us out of the shadows. It invites us to live with a wholehearted, soul-filled love and faith. God did not come to fix our brokenness, but he came to be broken with us. We're going to pass, Max is going to come, they're going to play a song, and we're going to pass the cup and the crackers. If this is your first time here, you can dip the cracker in the juice, and we share it among each other. No one needs to come up here and pass it to the person next to you. Meditate on this idea that God is the lion, that there is nothing more that you can do to love him more than have an open heart for him. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion.
this is the time in the service where you can uh, chat. We can have a conversation about what was presented today. If you have any questions, you can share, ask your questions. Um, is there anything? Anybody have anything to say? Yes. I'm going to try this. May. It's just a short question. What is the name of the book you were referring to? It's, it's called Christianity Rediscovered by Vincent Donovan. I highly recommend it. I found it probably 15 years ago and it began, it was one of the, it began a, a process, let's just say. But it was one of the most important books that I had come across in my, in my life. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just wanted you, if you could elaborate more on the whole concept of, because uh, you touched upon, um, we shouldn't be trying to love God. Um, just to kind of elaborate more on that, that seemed to like pique my interest. And Yeah, um, it, it's a thought that I'm thinking about that I, I haven't entirely thought it all the way through. But, <laughs> but the idea of it is the more we try to to engage with God, like through, if I pray a certain time, certain many times a day, if I read this scripture, if I think about it this way, if I don't behave this way and I do behave this way, if I keep doing all these things, then somehow that's going to unlock some special place in my heart that'll make me more divine and more spiritual. And for me, it's just led to a lot of frustration. That is not to say you shouldn't do those things. It is not to say you shouldn't create spaces where you're open. But like the, the, the young man in the story who went searching so many times when you are forcing, um, you're forcing this idea of like, I'm going to go find God here. You've missed God already. God, God is here. He's already here. And often it is not in those perfect moments of spiritual epiphany that we find God. It's in the brokenness. It's in the, in the coming out of the shadows and the vulnerability in which we live our lives. That is where God meets us. So when I say don't try to love God, it's not to say close your heart. It's actually to do the opposite. Because when you completely open up the heart, it becomes very vulnerable, and, you're, and you might feel like it's out of control. And that is where you will start to experience the wholeness of God. That's my take on it. There's more to be, there's more to say about that, I think, to, to kind of flesh that out, but that's kind of what I mean by that. Um, so along those lines, um, I just completed a songwriting uh, intensive course at the Songwriting School of LA in Burbank, which is amazing. Um, and it helped me do exactly what you said, which is um, shine a light on those areas in my life where there are shadows. Um, and I've wanted to pursue a songwriting career for like 20 years. <laughs> um, and I've been, you know, all over the place doing other things. But um, what was great about this class, because it involved us doing a lot of like free writing and exploring our, you know, what really means something to us, our truths. And we had to present something the last day. <laughs> and it just, it kind of, I had that moment of meaning. I, I can't call it an epiphany. I don't want to make it that whatever, but it was, it was really profound. And it was sort of like, yes, maybe the journey took a lot longer <laughs> than I would have hoped, uh, but maybe it was supposed to. 
Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Caleb. Um, thanks for sharing this morning. I, I, I enjoyed it. I think for me, talking about the trine, I mean, I love how the writer used the example of, of the long distance shooter as far as being just your eyes and your finger is the equivalent to just doing those things that I grew up in church, understanding to have a relationship with Christ is attend church and a pray, but that's not the wholeheartedness of it. Whether I'm here or I don't pray, my heart is still totally in, in, engulfed in love because of Christ. So it's the, for me, it's that parallel that I really love that's really spoke to me, so. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe that helps out a little bit too, yeah. Anything else? Thoughts, questions, concerns? Yes. Oops, oh, go ahead. I had a question um, regarding the uh, the loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. Yeah. Um, if you, the one of the commandments is love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't have love for yourself, how do you love others? You won't, you won't do a very good job at it, I would imagine, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it implies that you have a, a love for yourself. It feels that way. But if we are living um, we have not acknowledged our brokenness. We're still living in the shadows. We do not have the self-love for our whole selves of who we are. Then it makes it very, very hard to love your neighbors, I, I would say. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but that process is stepping out, uh, stepping out of the shadows and stepping into this wholehearted life that God calls us into, that is the wholehearted pursuit. And that's what God is to us. He is wholeheartedly pursuing us. Can we do the same? And when we can do that, then we can, you know, begin to see our neighbors in a new light. We begin to have whole hearts for the people around us. And we can begin to start loving our enemies, which feels like an impossibility on the onset. That makes sense. Yeah? Yeah? Uh, thanks for sharing. I think it's really great to hear from you on the, all these topics. Um, especially in regards to that last question about like loving yourself, I found growing up in the church, there's a real shame about um, taking the steps necessary to love yourself outside of the church, to going to therapy, to asking for help. Um, I feel like those responses are usually met with, oh, well, you're feeling bad about yourself, you should pray about it. Let's go talk to the pastor about it, or you know, kind of pushing you off into being somebody else's problem. And like, I mean, just I guess uh, encouraging anyone here that there is no shame in like seeking professional help, um, especially in the midst of all this tragedy, and especially in the midst of any deconstruction. Just having it feels weird like you're paying someone to like be your friend and listen to you. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a um, wealth of knowledge there. And even in that space of like, okay, I am, I mean, before, for personally for myself, I don't know when the last time I've actually like had like an, an hour where I'm just talking about myself. That's just not something that I used to doing, you know, um, but it's hard to really know yourself or to love yourself when you aren't, able to really express yourself because growing up you were told that like expressing your doubts and your fears and your insecurities 
was like a lack of faith. And so just, yeah. Thank you, that's a great point. It's something that you, that, that you can't necessarily do on our own. And I think so much of, like when we grow up, a lot of people who grew up in the church, it was always about personal faith. This is your thing. This is your individual relationship with God. And if anybody else has to get involved, there's something broken with it. It's, and it's kind of to the contrary. It's a community. It's, it's bringing your wholeness and yourself into to getting the help that you might need or the people you can talk to. Um, shame is the antithesis of like what it means to live wholeheartedly. Because shame inherent means you're covering yourself, you're hiding, you're, you're, you're staying in the shadows, you're pushing down those pieces that you're, you're ashamed of or you think other people would, find, would shame you for. So, and that doesn't come out unless, you, a lot of times, unless you're with someone who can help you bring that out. That's a great point. Any last comments? Okie dokie. I always like to end my sermons with okie dokie. Um, it's a good way. It's like a, a fantastic way to send everybody out. Um, anyway, um, go have a great week. Um, live a wholehearted life and go in peace.